The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Never in my life have I ever seen anything like this. I hope that I shall never ever see anything like it again. For years, of course, the miners have been used to having roll calls whenever there's been a pit disaster. Today, for the first time in history, the roll call was called in the street was the miners' children. And even now, at this time of night, more than 12 hours after disaster first struck, little glimmers of hope still run down through the main street. Only minutes ago, someone came down with a faint hope, they said, <coughs> that they'd found a child, and the child was underneath a blackboard. And they thought that the child was alive. Ten minutes before, they brought out a whole pile of bodies of 20 children where the whole of this muck had run straight through the whole of the classroom and literally buried them. Mining is one of the most dangerous career choices. Miners and colliers who work at coal mining sites called collieries are all too aware of the immense risk of working underground. The confronting nature of their job is that they may very well head off to work one day and not come home. Tragic as it may be, mining accidents aren't uncommon. The morbid prospect of premature death in the workplace is accepted. That's not even taking into account the respiratory and dust disease, such as emphysema caused by involuntary inhaling airborne byproducts, which can significantly shorten a miner's life expectancy. On the night of October 20th, 1966, residents of the South Welsh mining town of Abervan were listening to the rain pour down outside. The autumn weather had brought with it several weeks of heavy rain, and earlier that day it had been torrential. Since the start of October, there had been six and a half inches of rain in total, with almost half that amount falling in the third week alone. In short, it's the type of weather we all associate with Britain. But at that time of year, in that part of Wales, it wasn't unusual. South Wales has a rich coal mining history, dating back to the 19th century. The coal industry was key in providing jobs to many Welsh communities and supporting the local economy. Up until the early 20th century, Britain relied primarily on coal as a fuel source. By mid-1960s, coal use was declining, and collieries started being permanently closed as oil and natural gas took over. Despite this, there were still many proud working-class families in strong mining communities, like Abervan and the nearby village of Merthervale. Both villages are situated in an area called the Taff Valley. This is located about four miles south of the town of Merthyr Tydfil, 
and 20 miles north of the Welsh capital city of Cardiff. Habervan lies at the bottom of the valley slope, intersected by the River Taff, which runs through the village. On the western slope, above Habervan, is a railway embankment and the disused Glamorganshire Canal. Husband's father's brothers and sons worked at the Merthervale Colliery, situated on the hill just above Abervan. In many ways, the colliery was the heartbeat of the bustling industry community. If you didn't have an immediate family member who worked there, you knew at least one person who did. By 1996, Abervan was a socially vibrant village of 5,000 people, which was thriving economically. Writer Owen Sheen noted that local businesses such as multiple butchers, fishmongers, and cinemas did a brisk trade. This was thanks to high levels of employment, not only in the coal industry, but in local manufacturing. Cultural pursuits were alive and well, evident in the numerous community groups dedicated to performing arts, for which Wales is renowned. Many of the Avervan Colliers had young children who attended Panclass Junior School. It was a red brick building on Moy Road, constructed during the Victorian era. The 21st of October, 1966, dawn misty and gray, with fog blanketing the village. The 240 students of Panclass School were looking forward to their half-term break. At an assembly later that morning, they would sing the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, for their teachers before school would be dismissed at midday. Ahead of them was a week off. The children were looking forward to getting outside for hours of playtime with their friends. That morning, eight-year-old Panclass student Jeff Edwards walked to school with his friend Robert Jones. When the boys arrived, they hung up their coats and took their seats in the classroom. It was a perfectly ordinary, drizzly autumn day with everyone in the village going about their business. But what no one in Abervan, Wales, or even the rest of Britain could anticipate was in less than an hour, the lives of the town's residents would be changed forever in the most tragic, and some would later say, entirely foreseeable, of circumstances. Now, let's get on with it. When Merthervale Colliery was sunk in 1869 on the banks of the River Taff, there wasn't much to speak of in Abervan. The village was home only to some isolated farms and a local pub. After the first commercial coal was brought to the surface in 1875, the village started to grow as the colliery workforce expanded. Listener, before we continue with our story, it's important to explain briefly how the coal mining process works as this has a bearing on what occurred in Abervan. When coal is extracted from the ground, it must be separated from coal waste. This byproduct is also known as spoil and consists of dirt, gravel, loose rock, and dust. During the coal extraction process, spoil needs to be deposited separately in a dedicated space. When the Merthervale Colliery opened, the spoil was being tipped on the floor of the Taff Valley, west of the canal, but by 1916, space had run out. At the time, the cheapest alternative was for spoil to be dumped near the entrance to the mine site. In Abervan, this meant it was deposited high on the hillside, as a ridge known as Muneth Merthyr, looming above the valley. Over the years, several of these massive black mounds of coal waste accumulated, known as tips. Only one tip was ever used at a time. A new one was created when deemed necessary. The spoil was carried from the colliery over the river by a tram system along a track which climbed up the hillside. Near the tip was a crane which lifted the tram containers from the tracks and emptied the spoil onto the tip. A crane operator and a separate crew of colliers had oversight of this part of the spoil disposal process under the supervision of a charge hand. Every day before the start of the morning shift, Staff inspected the top of the tip before positioning the crane, ready to work. In late 1944, some of the spoil broke away from the tip number four, which was 147 feet high and contained 572,000 cubic yards of coal waste. 
It slid as far as 1,800 feet down the hillside before stopping just 500 to 600 feet from the canal. The slide damaged the landscape, but thankfully, nobody was injured. As far as colliery management was concerned, there was no need to panic. It wasn't unusual for tips to slide or for part of them to sink inward around three to four feet. Three years later, when Britain's coal industry was nationalized in 1947, the government established the National Coal Board. The statutory board now controlled all British coal mines and collieries, including those in Wales. Tips continue to be the preferred method of disposing of coal waste at numerous mines due to the cost-effectiveness for the government. The coal board was chaired by former trade union leader and industrialist, Lord Alfred Robins. In 1957, the decision was made to close tip number 6 in Abervan, following complaints from a local farmer that coal waste was spilling over onto his land. Tip number 7 was created in 1958, but something about the composition of the spoil here was slightly different. The coal waste on tip 7 contained something called tailings, which the other 6 tips didn't. Tailings are a geological component of coal waste, making up a small percentage of spoil. They consist of fine coal and ash particles produced during the chemical extraction process. When tailings are exposed to a significant amount of moisture, such as heavy rain or flooding, they turn into a thick black sludge of a similar consistency to quicksand. By 1966, the millions of cubic meters of spoil in the seven tips dominated the Abervan skyland. Tip 7, which was 500 feet above the village, comprised approximately 2.6 million cubic yards of spoil, including 30,000 cubic yards of tailings. It won't surprise you to learn that water can have a significant impact on the stability of coal tips. The downpour that Abervan experienced during the first three weeks of October 1966 wasn't unseasonal. The area was known for its high annual rainfall of around 60 inches a year. Living in a valley, this presented ongoing risk of flooding for village residents. Indeed, the pant glass area of Abervan was severely flooded several times between 1949 and 1965, with water at around two feet deep. Further compounding any cleanup efforts was that the water eventually receded and left a slimy black film on everything it had touched. A drainage channel had been dug earlier in 1944, but it hadn't seemed to be much help at all in holding back the filthy water. This was extremely frustrating for affected residents. Early on the morning of October 21st, while the valley and Abervan were shrouded in mist, there was unobstructed visibility up on the hillside. On shift that day at Tip 7 were crane operator Gwyn Brown and tip slinger David Jones. Their supervisor, charge hand Leslie Davis, remained behind at the surface of the mine to provide a weekly report of the colliery engineer. At 7.30 a.m., Gwyn and David went to the top of the tip to conduct their usual checks. They were disturbed by what they saw, Overnight, the top of Tip 7 had sunk in about 9 or 10 feet, the volume of rainfall likely liquefying the bottom part of the tip. Liquefaction often refers in a pile of granular material, including coal tip. With the bottom part of the tip containing water, the liquid fills any gaps between the particles of spoil. Inside the hole at the top of the tip, the rails which form part of the track on which the spoil was transported had fallen in. Gwen suggested that David head back immediately to report the concerning discovery to Leslie. David had to walk back down the hillside to convey the message. He couldn't make a phone call, given the tip's telephone had been removed, due to repeated thefts of the telephone cable connecting it to the mine. Around 8 a.m., David told Leslie about the fine and advised him to escalate the matter to unit mechanical engineer Vivian Thomas. Vivian sent Leslie, David, and a small crew up to the tip around 9 a.m. with an oxyacetylene torch. The men were tasked with severing the overhanging tram rails. They also had to ensure the crane was moved back as far as possible from the top of the tip. 
Only 90 minutes had passed, but the tip had sunk another 10 feet. It was now 20 feet below its usual level. Vivian directed that there was no further tipping on tip 7, saying that a new tip site would need to be determined the following week. Before moving the crane back further, Leslie suggested the men have a tea break, but Gwyn stayed behind at the tip. At the same time, down at Panclass Junior School, student Jeff Edwards wanted to swap some library books he borrowed. He walked over to the far side of the classroom where the books were kept, then returned to his desk to start a math lesson. The school dinner lady, Nancy Williams, was busying herself collecting money from children to cover the cost of their school lunches. It was 9.15 a.m. Back up at tip 7, crane operator Gwyn suddenly saw the spoils start to slip away from the bottom of the tip. He later described it as follows. Quote, I was standing on the edge of the depression. I was looking down into it, and what I saw, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was starting to come back up. It started to rise slowly at first. I still did not believe it, and I thought I was seeing things. Then it rose up pretty fast, at a tremendous speed. And it sort of came up out of the depression, turned itself into a wave. That is the only way I can describe it. Down towards the mountain, towards Abervan. Even if the telephone at the tip had been working, there would have been no time for Gwen to make the call to alert anyone of what was coming. The 9.15 a.m. slip took part of the saturated spoil past the liquefaction threshold. When this happened, the water inside the spoil was the catalyst for the entire tip to no longer behave as a solid, but a liquid, and one with a density around twice that of water. As Gwyn watched on in horror, tip 7 instantaneously liquefied. 170,000 tons of waterlogged spoil broke away from the bottom of the tip. It rushed 700 yards downhill at a speed of up to 30 to 40 miles pH in black waves up to 40 feet high. Teaching staff were marking off class attendance rolls when the rumbling grew closer. To some, it sounded like an airplane was about to land on top of the school. Jeff's teacher, 21-year-old Michael Davis, reassured the class that it was only loud thunder. As the coal waste plunged down the hill, its velocity increased. It consumed two farm cottages, killing two children and their grandmother who were inside. The spoil careered across the canal and railway embankment, bursting two water mains in the process. Suddenly, the lights suspended from the school ceiling began to shake and flash, on and off. Teaching staff on the eastern side of the school barely had time to shout at their students to take shelter under their desks. Some children were petrified, too afraid to move, and just froze in their seats. A wall of coalways slammed into the eastern side of Panclass Junior School, smashing through the windows which were no match for the force of the spoil. The roaring tsunami of thick sludge and debris demolished one side of the building, consuming classrooms, houses along Moy Road, as well as part of the separate senior school. The blackness swallowed everything in its path. Nancy Williams, who had busily been collecting money for lunch from the students, used her body to shield five children, including seven-year-old Karen Thomas. All of a sudden, we seen glass flying everywhere. So the dinner lady told us to get on the floor. So we all dived to the floor and she got on top of us. And then the next thing we knew, then there was all slurry and the walls were falling in on top of us. The deluge continued down to the village, destroying 20 houses along Moy Road which simply vanished under the black sludge. Then, as suddenly as it came, the avalanche stopped, as did the noise. There was no bird song, no immediate squeals or shouts from the children, just silence. In the 1978 documentary, When Havoc Struck, Gwen Brown, who saw the entire nightmare unfold from the top of Tip 7, described the immediate aftermath. Everybody would have pinned up. After it, you could hear a pin drop. There wasn't a bird singing him on the mountain. And I think it was the same down here when we got down here. Like, 
everything was so quiet. After the landslide stopped, teachers at the junior school did their best to carry out every child they could find, passing survivors through smashed and broken windows to safety. Students were instructed to head straight home. At 9.25 a.m., one resident called Merthyr Tidville Police, reporting, quote, There's been a landslide at Pant Glass. The tip has come down on the school. Local residents, including a dedicated mine rescue team and desperate and panicked parents, rushed to the junior school. Frantically, they dug through the rubble and sooty sludge, clawing the material away with their bare hands or with rakes, shovels, and buckets. They clamored inside the windows in the sections of the school that hadn't been entirely destroyed. In less than half an hour, culinary workers who were off shift had raced to the scene, used their helmets to dig and scrape away the debris, as did their colleagues who were on duty at the mine. But it was slow going. The experienced miners who led the rescue effort knew it was vital that haphazard digging could result in further building collapse if any of the spoil was removed risking the lives of any survivors inside. One student, David Davies, was pulled from the wreckage and carried to his father. It appeared to everyone that David had succumbed to his injuries until a nurse saw his leg move. Meanwhile, student Jeff Edwards had opened his eyes, but he too was covered in rubble, trapped under his desk, and with his right leg stuck in a radiator. The dead body of a fellow student lay resting on his shoulder, and this image continued to traumatize Jeff for many years to come. All around him, he could hear the distressed cries and shouts of his peers, desperate for help. As his eyes adjusted to his surroundings, Jeff looked upwards. He could see a shaft of light penetrating the refuse, but was confused. Where the classroom ceiling should have been was the sky. This was because Jeff's classroom had been destroyed, along with two others. He mercifully found that even though he couldn't move, he was trapped in a pocket of air, allowing him to breathe. But how long would it last? He didn't know. He could only hope he was found before he asphyxiated. As the time passed, the cries of Jeff's classmates dwindled to silence, as one by one, they suffocated under the debris. It was a cruel way to die. Many of the children used to play on the tips to pass their time. Now it had killed them, but no one yet knew how many. Rescuers worked to quickly free 31 surviving children and five adults from both the junior school and the shattered houses on Moy Road. Many children who were pulled alive from the coal waste had, like their friends, been buried in the spoil. They had no choice but to await rescue while their friends' dead bodies lay next to them. 90 minutes after the slide struck, Rescuers used hatchets to hack away at the desk, which had pinned Jeff Edwards to the ground. Jeff was finally pulled to safety and sent to the hospital. Well, no one knew it at the time, he was the last survivor to be pulled out. For anyone else who remained missing, it would now be a recovery mission, not a rescue. How are the children that you have got out, the ones that were alive? Oh, well, they look, they look terrible, and that's all you can say. It looked ghastly, you know. They had been given morphia with the doctor, and they were just taken away. They were from actual mine rescue men, digging a hole in to get two boys out. We got the one out, but then we got to drop in on top of the other, because there's no chance, they're completely dead, there's no... By mid-morning, the horrifying news of the slide broke across Britain on BBC News. The roads surrounding Abervan became congested from vehicles as thousands of volunteers descended upon the village to help, but their good intentions proved to be more of a hindrance. By this stage, the site was crawling with police, firefighters, medical personnel, miners from nearby villages, the Red Cross, and Salvation Army. It would be increasingly difficult to coordinate an organized search without anyone else being killed or injured. Meanwhile, Word had been received of the disaster at a meeting of the coal board that same morning. The board decided that instead of sending Chairman Lord Robins to inspect the site and assess the situation, the chief safety engineer would suffice. After all, 
Lord Robins had a conflicting engagement. He decided it was more important to attend his investiture ceremony, which he would be inducted as Chancellor of the University of Surrey. In a detail which wouldn't emerge until years later, when the Welsh Secretary of State wanted to know when Lord Robins would be expected in Abervan, senior coal board officials lied, saying the chairman was already closely involved in the relief effort. You'll recall that when the torrent of spoil came storming down the hills before it buried the junior school, it burst two water mains in the disused railway embankment. As a result, around two to three million gallons of water gushed into the village. Mud and water from the slide flooded other houses in the Pentglass area, forcing the evacuation of another 60 homes and further destabilizing affecting buildings. Slurry forced its way through the rear of some houses, swallowing furniture and pushing its way out front doors and windows to the road. It's an incredible sight. The whole mountain is moving again. The police are here calling us away from a house which is, they think is about to come down. Suddenly the tip is on the move again and is now moving into the main village street making useless the whole work already done here by excavators which have been moving backwards and forwards all morning. Another unfortunate characteristic of the sodden coal waste was that once it had come to a stop down in the village, it resolified. It then hardened, much like concrete does as it dries. The enormous pile of spoil was up to 33 feet high. By the time the water mains had finally turned off, it was 11.30 a.m. Half an hour later, coal board engineers began digging a drainage channel. They hoped this would stabilize the tip and minimize the effects of any further movement back up the hillside. Buckingham Palace issued a statement from the Queen and Prince Philip, which read, quote, I am shocked and distressed to learn of the terrible disaster which has taken place at Abervan." Please convey a message of my heartfelt sympathy from my husband and myself to the children's parents and to the families of those that have lost their lives. Back at the disaster site, volunteer rescuers, emergency responders, and miners continued digging tirelessly through the rubble. Their relentless work was only punctuated by the shriek of a whistle or a shout which pierced the air. This signal meant that the silence was required to determine if anything could be heard from underneath the pile of slurry. It was a cruel way of lifting the spirits temporarily, only for hopes to be dashed when no muffled cries for help could be heard. But it had to be done. This was number one Moy Road in this tragedy struck village here. The house itself is on fire, it's burning underneath there, but nobody's doing anything about it, just in case perhaps there's somebody alive underneath. Every now and again, everybody stops working, the bulldozers stop, and everybody listens to see if they can hear anybody, hear anybody under this rubble. I must admit, standing here and looking at the wreckage, it seems almost a hopeless task. A makeshift mortuary was established in Abervan's Bethania Chapel, which would be staffed around the clock for the next two weeks. Doctors were in charge of examining the bodies and issuing death certificates. The cause of death was generally either severe, multiple crushing injuries, or asphyxia, but no post-mortems were conducted. Each body was given a number which was cross-referenced with an index card matching their description as they awaited identification. Volunteers washed and prepared the bodies for identification as best they could, wrapping them in blankets and placing them on trestles placed across the pews. Due to the sheer force of the slurry when it engulfed the school, Several limbs were recovered from the refuse, sometimes before there was a body to match them to. In four cases, lower limbs formed part of a body. These limbs were given their own identification number in the makeshift mortuary. Some children had sustained facial injuries that were so severe that their identification tags were marked not to be viewed. These victims had to be identified via dental records are through the heartbreaking process of taking their fingerprints and matching these with toys and belongings in their homes. As more of the bodies filled the chapel, anxious families were forced to wait outside, 
until they could be permitted inside to identify any loved ones still unaccounted for. Hordes of media had by now converged on Abervan, with more journalists and photographers arriving with the passing of each hour. The level of news coverage for such a large-scale disaster was unprecedented. For the first time, video footage beamed around the world, supplemented the photographs which captured the raw emotion of the rescue unfolding as it happened. The audio you heard at the very start of today's episode was the first report at the scene given by highly respected veteran BBC journalist Cliff Mitchellmore. Even such a seasoned reporter seemed at times lost for words at the devastation he was witnessing. A shell-shocked local residents resented the media intrusion and what they saw as exploitation on the profound grief and anguish. Much of the media was criticized for insensitive and ghoulish behavior and their brazen desire for a soundbite, headline, or suspecting photo opportunity. By 5 p.m., 20 bodies had been pulled from the rubble, but 150 people remained unaccounted for. As day turned to light, the flash of torches and miners' lamps in the darkness and the hum of earth-moving equipment marked the spot where 2,000 rescuers continued to work, round the clock. They persisted despite their bleeding hands which were raw, devoid of skin and fingernails which had been torn off. It was painstaking and torturous, both physically and mentally. Rescuers at times were reluctant to rely on bulldozers too much due to the risk of vibrations causing another slide. Buckets of rubble were passed along by chains of rescue workers. Smoke was rising from the slurry due to the houses, which had been destroyed and subsequently caught fire. The Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, arrived in Abervan just after 9.30 p.m. He spoke with both police and rescue workers at the site, witnessing firsthand the unfathomable impact. Whether the disaster was a terrible accident or the result of a man-made preventable factor was at this stage still unknown. But Prime Minister Wilson knew there was no question that an official government inquiry would need to be established to determine exactly what happened. Meanwhile, members of the public wanted to know how they could best help the village in terms of financial recovery. The book, Abervan, Disaster and Its Aftermath, by Joan Miller, explains how, on the evening of the disaster, the mayor of Merthyr Tidville announced that a formal appeal was being launched where the public could send donations. By 11.30 p.m., 67 bodies had been recovered. The morning following the disaster saw the death toll rise to 111, but only 51 victims had been identified. 36 of the survivors remained hospitalized, and over 80 people remained missing. Military personnel arrived on site to assist in the recovery efforts. Early in the morning, Queen Elizabeth II's brother-in-law, Lord Snowden, arrived in Havervan, speaking with those involved on the ground. Later in the day, her husband, Prince Philip, also visited the scene, but the absence of the Queen herself didn't go unnoticed. Some felt that this was a sovereign's duty to publicly provide moral support to her subjects under such catastrophic circumstances by making a personal visit. If the 2,500 rescue workers thought that any immediate risks had passed, they were about to get more bad news. Back up at tip 7, heavy rain started at 2.30 p.m., causing immense anxiety and fear that the tip would slide again and engulf the rescuers. To make matters worse, earth-moving equipment had become bogged in the mud and sludge, rendering them useless. The likelihood that anyone who remained missing would be found alive was extremely slim. According to the Daily Express newspaper, one of the houses destroyed in the disaster was still burning at 7 p.m. Not all victims had been pulled from the crushed and flooded homes. By this stage, any bodies being recovered showed signs of burns where the heat of the slurry had corroded the skin. The combination of heat mixed with air pockets under the sections of the rubble meant that some bodies of younger children had also started decomposing by the time they were pulled out. Lord Robins finally arrived in Abervan that Saturday evening. He publicly announced that the coal board 
would fully cooperate with the upcoming inquiry. Two days after the slide, the media was drilling down on Lord Robins during his examination of Tip 7. Reporters questioned him about the coal board's responsibility in bearing any liability for the disaster. Lord Robins claimed that the coal board couldn't possibly accept responsibility for weather conditions and rainfall. Everyone knew that Abervan had received torrential rains in the weeks leading up to the disaster, but reporters countered this with a scandalous revelation which wouldn't become public until much later. In the years before the slide, both locals and Merthyr Tidwell Council had apparently been trying to get the coal board to do something about the risk to the village. Given the spoil tips having been created on top of the natural springs and streams on the hillside, but their calls for actions had gone ignored. Lord Robin scoffed at the proposition that anyone could possibly know that a spring was underneath any of the tips, much less deciding to proceed with creating tips on such an unstable site, to knowingly then also position spoil tips on the site of natural springs would be incredibly dangerous, not to mention criminally negligent. As we know, when coal waste comes into contact with a considerable amount of water, it can liquefy and become unstable, essentially turning into sludge. The same day that Lord Robins dismissed the allegation that he was aware of springs underneath the spoil tips, around 4,000 embalmers from across the United Kingdom arrived in Abervan, volunteering their services. Some brought with them as many child-sized coffins as they could, aware that there would be a shortage for such supplies given the size of surrounding villages. According to the New Statesman, multiple embalming units were set up in the Calvinist Chapel nearby, which became a second mortuary. The embalmer's new time was of the essence in order to minimize inflicting any further distress on the grief-stricken families. The death toll continued to climb. 144 people in total lost their lives. The youngest victim was only three months old, and the oldest was 78. 116 of the victims were children aged between 7 and 10 years old, the majority being students of Pant Glass Junior School. Stories continued to emerge of the selflessness of the school staff in sacrificing their own lives in order to protect the youngest charges from the onslaught of the slide. Thanks to the bravery of the school dinner lady, Nancy Williams, the children she protected survived. Tragically, Nancy did not. The book Abervan, The Story of a Disaster, by Tony Austin, details how Nancy was discovered, still holding a pound note she had been collecting for lunch money. When rescuers found her body, Panclass Deputy Headmaster, Dai Bai Nin, was found clutching five students to him as the group tried to shield behind a chalkboard. But his heroic efforts were in vain. He perished, along with his entire class of 34 students, including Jeff Edwards' best friend, Robert Jones. In a particularly macabre observation by the Daily Express, the bodies of Dai Bai Nin and the children he tried to save were in rigor mortis by the time they were discovered. In order to separate Dai and his students' bodies from each other's grip, rescuers had to break the arms of the deceased. Five teachers out of nine lost their lives, including 64-year-old headmistress Ann Jennings and 35-year-old Greta Bates, who died with her entire class. Michael Davis was asphyxiated, along with all but four of his students, including Jeff Edwards, who, as we know, survived. Local man John Collins, who worked in Cardiff, lost not only his house in Moy Road, but his whole family. Upon returning urgently to Abervan, he found his house had been totally destroyed. At the time of the slide, his oldest son was sitting on a wall with some friends when the torrent of black muck came thundering down the hill towards them. The boy ran towards home to warn his mother, but was killed by the slurry, as was she. John Collins' younger son, who had been at Pantglass Junior School, also lost his life. According to the Merthyr Express, at the coroner's inquest into the deaths of 30 of the children held three days after the disaster, angry locals continued to demand accountability from Lord Robins and the coal board. The names of the victims were read out in their official cause of death, 
man whose wife and two sons had lost their lives vocally objected during the proceedings, shouting in response, quote, No, sir. Buried alive by the National Coal Board. That is what I want to see on the record. That is the feeling of those present. Those are the words we want to go on the certificates. Five of the child victims were buried on October 25th. Two days later, all of Abervan stopped for a second time in less than a week. Shops and pubs were shut, as the entire community gathered at Brintaf Cemetery for a mass funeral to farewell 81 more children and local mother, Gwyneth Collins. Gwyneth had been at home when the slide struck, killing her and her two sons who were at school. Aerial shots of the cemetery showed a sobering scene. Half the village children, effectively an entire generation of Abervan, were buried in two trenches 80 feet long, the tiny coffins laying side by side. Further up the cemetery, flowers and wreaths lay on the hill, forming a crucifix. Among the many floral tributes was a model of Pant Glass Junior School, entirely covered with flowers. An estimated five to 10,000 people attended the funeral, which was only 15 minutes long, in order to spare the community further heartache. In addition to their already overwhelming grief, the following day, the last victim was pulled from the rubble. On October 29th, in response to criticism over the absence of British Empire's head of state, Queen Elizabeth II finally arrived in Abervan to personally convey her condolences to the community, accompanied by Prince Philip. The inquiry into the disaster formally commenced in late November 1966. It was an exhaustive process, running for five months. During that time, the inquiry panel heard lengthy testimony from 136 witnesses and examined 300 exhibits. The evidence covered everything from the history of mining in the area to the geological conditions of the South Wales coal field. It was during the inquiry that the full extent of information held about Merthervale Colliery by the coal board was exposed. However, the media was prevented from reporting on the full details of the evidence at the time, being threatened with contempt of court. The inquiry heard that in the years before the disaster, Abervan locals had indeed pushed for the coal board to take action to mitigate the risk posed by the tips and frequent flooding. Mining regulations were so lax at the time that there was a complete absence of any legislation forcing the disposal of coal waste and appropriate management of spoil tips. Safety inspector engineers were appointed to monitor the mines themselves. However, at the spoil tips, there was no such preservation. One of the few regulations in place stating that tips were to be no higher than 20 feet had been grossly violated, with no penalties. Tip 7 alone had been more than five times his height, standing at 111 feet. The inquiry heard that it was common knowledge amongst colliery management and employees, as well as local residents, that at least three of the tips, including Tip 7, were built over springs. Indeed, they had been consistently documented on ordnance survey maps dating back to 1874, evident that they weren't a recent discovery. The tribunal heard that Tip 7 started shifting back in May 1963. That July, and again in August, Merthyr Tidville Consul wrote to local coal board authorities, expressing concerns about the proximity of the tip to Pantglass School. One letter said in part, quote, I'm very apprehensive about this matter, and this apprehension is also in the minds of the local councillors and the residents in this area. If the tips were to move a very serious position, what a crew. But no action was taken by the coal board. In November 1963, there was another slide. In this occasion, the coal board rejected the concerns, claiming that the tip remained stable and that tailings in the tip had simply run off. Interestingly, following the incident, the coal board directed that no further tailings were to be deposited on tip 7, but spoil tippings continued as usual. More letters followed from the consul in December 1963, and in January and March 1964, 
conveying the ongoing seriousness of the matter. Quote, The slurry is so fluid and the gradient so steep that it cannot possibly stay in position during the winter time or during periods of heavy rain. Following a petition signed by parents in 1965, the coal board finally agreed to address the concerns about flooding by seeing to the existing drainage ditches, but nothing happened till it was too late. At the same time, Abervane residents were all too aware that if they were seen to be too troublesome in voicing their concerns, there was a real possibility that the coal board could simply decide to close down the colliery altogether. The coal board's implicit threats of loss of livelihood hung over the heads of many locals. It was essentially a way of dissuading residents from taking their complaints further. After all, without the colliery, the village itself would die. Lord Robins was one of the last witnesses to appear at the tribunal to give evidence. His previous statements denying any knowledge of the existence of the spring at the colliery, that the tip itself was unstable, or that the disaster could have been prevented, were tested. The tribunal found that this testimony was entirely inconsistent with evidence provided by other witnesses employed with the coal board. Engineers testified that they were indeed aware of the instability of the tip, However, the bulk of engineering resources were devoted to the mine rather than waste disposal. The tribunal concluded in late April 1967. Just over three months later, it released its report, and the findings were nothing short of damning of the coal board's interaction. The board was found to be entirely to blame for the disaster, both at the organizational level as well as nine specific individuals who bore responsibility Quote, much of the time the tribunal could have been saved if the coal board had stubbornly resisted every attempt to lay the blame where it so clearly must rest at their door. Our strong and unanimous view is that the disaster could and should have been prevented. The report which follows tells not of wickedness, but of ignorance, ineptitude, and a failure in communication. Ignorance on the part of those charged at all levels with the sitting control, and daily management of tips. A terrifying tale of bungled ineptitude by many men in charge with tasks for which they were totally unfitted, a failure to heed clear warnings, and a total lack of direction from above. The tribunal made several key findings from a soil mechanics and hydrogeology perspective. The presence of tailings in the spoil of tip 7 was not found to have had an impact on tip instability but the absence of a tipping policy or associated legislation regulating spoil tips was a significant failing. The tribunal also determined that the coal board's failure to act following the previous slides was a major contributor to the disaster. The coal board was found to be legally liable to pay compensation for both personal injuries and resulting property damage. The tribunal also made numerous recommendations regarding ongoing appropriate management of spoiled tips, this including establishing a National Tip Safety Committee, Standard Code of Practice, and expansion of existing Mines and Queries Acts. Without doubt, the most timely recommendation was that immediate action be taken to remove existing tips above Abervan. In short, Abervan residents were somewhat vindicated but it was a bittersweet outcome. None of the nine coal board employees were sacked or performance managed. This was largely due to the coroner's findings that the deaths were accidental, which established no criminal liability on the part of the coal board. Professors Ian McLean and Martin Jones have conducted extensive sociopolitical analysis of the disaster. Among their research 30 years after the disaster, they uncovered details of a backroom deal between Lord Robins and his superior, the Minister of Power. Following the release of the tribunal report, Lord Robins got on the front foot, submitting his resignation to the minister, but this was all for appearance sake. Lord Robins' professional and public mea culpa was nothing more than disingenuous and self-serving. He had already held discussions and campaigned to ensure that his job was safe. His resignation ultimately wasn't accepted, and the reason? Despite Lord Robin's conduct following the disaster, 
in his lies about what the coal board knew about the risk of the tips. He was widely considered by both the government and the mining union to be the person most effective at managing both the decline of the British coal industry, as well as the resulting contempt from communities over mine closures. Abervan residents were openly critical of the lack of further action taken against the coal board. I think they should be instantly dismissed. I think they shouldn't be allowed to work for the coal board under any circumstances at any job. Do you agree that it was simply bungling ineptitude no. or a little more than this? No, I think a little more than that. As I say, I think it was absolute neglect throughout. And if it wasn't for neglect, I would have my little girl with me today. Widespread discontent among the community continued to be directed towards the coal board when it came to the question of the organization paying compensation to the affected families. Initially, a paltry 50 pounds was all that was offered, following criticism from families who felt the amount offered was nothing less than offensive. The coal board increased the figure to 500 pounds payable to each family who had suffered a bereavement. However, the coal board noted that in its view, the revised figure was, quote, a generous offer. In addition to these payments, the coal board begrudgingly paid compensation to those who had survived, as well as the broader community to cover property damage. One of the disaster fund, which was established immediately following the tragedy, Donations had poured in from around the world when the fund closed in January 1967. A total of £1.75 million had been raised. It was no small sum at the time. Today, the equivalent same amount would be around £30 million. By this stage, the funds were being managed under the auspices of the Charity Commission, a government charity regulator, and a trustee. But the disbursement of money to the bereaved families and the injecting it into the broader community regeneration project wouldn't be straightforward. As far as the Heartless Charity Commission was concerned, psychological trauma did not qualify anyone to receive compensation. As detailed by McLean and Jones, instead of families each receiving an equal amount of monetary compensation, the commission proposed that each affected family be interviewed so their trauma could be, quote, means-tested. Among the disgustingly insensitive assessment criteria was that no payment of any amount could be made to parents unless it had been established that they had been close to their deceased child. Thankfully, this callous proposal was never followed through. What the Charity Commission did threaten was that if any of the payments were approved for the parents of the 340 children who had escaped physical injury but were psychologically distressed, the trustees would be removed from the fund. It's difficult to overstate the impact the disaster had on the Aberfan community and surrounding villages, including those who were involved in the rescue and recovery. In the mid-1960s, and for many years afterwards, there wasn't a name to put to post-traumatic stress disorder, but according to a study in the British Journal of Psychiatry, this is exactly what around half the survivors went on to experience. Sleep disruption, night terrors, nightmares, crippling depression, bedwetting, flashbacks, fear of dark and loud noises, intrusive thoughts, panic attacks, were amongst the numerous, ongoing symptoms survivors experienced. Many of the Panclass students found it difficult to return to school, and their education suffered permanently as a result. They were simply petrified of being in a formal educational setting, fearing that harm could come to them if they were away from home. Survivor guilt touched nearly everyone in Abervan in some way. Parents of deceased children felt guilty for not being able to protect their offspring. Survivors, including parents of surviving children, felt guilty for literally being seen in public. For some, the very presence of children on the street was a reminder that half the junior school's peer group wouldn't grow up and could no longer play in the streets. Men who worked at the colliery, especially tip workers, 
felt a profound sense of torment that they should have somehow been able to stop the slide. The inquiry had publicly absolved any of the tipping gang of any responsibility, but it was old comfort, especially for those who had lost their own children. One local doctor also later told the BBC, quote, People had to face not only grief, but bitterness, anger, and even guilt. The first real thing that happened was the terrible nightmares people suffered, reliving the event time and time again. That went on for months. There was a terrible worry and pressure on people while the tip was still there. And every time there was a row over what was to be done about the tip, my surgery would be full the next day. The stress and anxiety triggered by what to do would affect people's health. It was predicted at the time that a lot of people might suffer from heart attacks brought on by stress and grief, but that didn't happen. Other experts predicted that there would be a number of suicides, but that didn't happen either. These people hadn't allowed for the resilience of the families involved. It was psychological problems that hit the worst. Also, many people were drinking a lot more. For some time after, I had to deal with people who had serious drink problems. And for people who had already had health problems, those problems increased. From the time of the disaster, for about the following six years, I dealt with people who suffered breakdowns. There was no set pattern or any time when it could be expected to happen. It happened at different times for different people. After the disaster, I warned the community would have to come to accept its guilt. The guilt came out in many ways. There were the so-called guilty men who were blamed for whatever happened. They suffered themselves and were the victims of a hate campaign. But it wasn't only them. Women who had sent their children who hadn't wanted to go to school that day suffered terrible feelings of guilt. There was a strange bitterness between families who lost children and those who hadn't. People just couldn't help it. By every statistic, patients seen, prescriptions written, deaths, I can prove this is a village of excessive sickness. Panclass student Jeff Edwards, who survived, later told the BBC, quote, We didn't go out to play for a long time because those who'd lost their children couldn't bear to see us. We all knew what they were feeling. We felt guilty about being alive. Play is an important part of child's development, but that stopped. Most of the kids we played with were gone. Play was frowned upon by the parents who lost children. The usual developmental stimulation through childhood play and learning was gone. There was hardly anyone left to play with anyway. All of Jeff's friends had died. To make things more difficult, there were little resources available to help survivors move forward healing. Tending therapy or any form of counseling wasn't as commonplace as it is nowadays. There was a high degree of stigma attached to the desire to seek professional help. Some people talked about it, some didn't. Some didn't leave their houses. Others were more frequently seen at the pub, trying to drink away their heartbreak. Welsh stoicism became the typical coping mechanism for many people, amongst the sorrow that seemed to blanket the village, much like the autumn fog. Every so often, an unexpected ray of sunshine would remind residents that they were never truly alone in their suffering. Some local women who had lost children in the disaster formed a small support group which met weekly. It was a much-needed outlet to connect in social settings like they used to, where they could gather to discuss their experiences and try to temporarily escape their sadness. The Aberfan Young Wives Club soon grew to 60 members, but the purpose of the group wasn't always to gather and ruminate about the what-ifs. Far from it. While mothers were free to share their feelings without fear of judgment in a safe space, they also organized group outings, including holidays. It proved to be the lifeline that many of them needed. All the while, months after the disaster, residual wreckage of the school and some of the houses on Moy Road was still waiting to be cleared. But this wasn't the only visible reminder of the tragedy that befallen the village. Removal of the tips began in 1969, equating to 1.8 million cubic meters of coal waste. That same year, 
the British government enacted the Mines and Quarries Tips Act. This revised legislation now covered the management and regulation of spoil tips in order to prevent them from becoming a danger to members of the public. Construction also finally finished on the site of the new Panglass Junior School, next to the colliery. In 1972, the groundwork was laid for the introduction of the Health and Safety at Work Act and the establishment of the Health and Safety Commission. In another somewhat unpalatable coincidence, the committee which was responsible for reviewing the previous legislation and making the recommendations which resulted in the new statutory requirements was chaired by none other than Lord Robins. In March 1973, the Queen returned to the village where she opened the Abervan and Merthervale Community Center on a site where the houses in Moy Road once stood. She also opened a memorial garden which had been created on the site of the former junior school. The boundaries of the building are marked by low stone walls, and landscaped flower borders mark where the classrooms once stood. Both these projects were paid for by the Disaster Fund. In the 1980s, there came big changes affecting Abervan, in 1987, the coal board as everyone knew it ceased operations. It would later be reimagined as the coal authority. Following on from privatization of the British coal industry, the following year, the disaster fund was split into the Abervan Memorial Charity, responsible for maintenance of the memorial garden and cemetery, and the Abervan Disaster Fund and Center. But the true end of an era came for the village when Merthervale Colliery closed in August 1989. Barty's spoken about the rigorous work of Ian McLean and Martin Jones, who in the mid-1990s reviewed the previously confidential government documents regarding the disaster. These laid bare many of the shortcomings of the coal board and its failure to manage spoiled tips or respond appropriately following the disaster. Their investigated efforts led directly to £150,000 being repaid to the disaster fund in 1997 by the Blair Labor government. This represented the money the fund was forced to pay in 1969 towards removal of the tips. Regrettably, the figure didn't account for inflation over the years. If it had, the fund would have received a figure closer to £1.5 million. It wasn't until 2007 that the Welsh government decided it was time to right this wrong, donating the inflation-adjusted amount to the Abervan Memorial Charity. 2016 marked the emotional 50th anniversary of the disaster. Both victims and survivors were honored and remembered by memorial ceremonies around the village, most notably the memorial garden and cemetery. Abervan today is a different place. The only sign that it was once home to a colliery is the mine sheaf wheel, which now stands in the middle of a roundabout in the village. The hillside where the tips once towered has since returned to the grassy slopes it once was before coal became the lifeblood of the area. Even more than 50 years after the disaster, Jeff Edwards, who went on to become the mayor of Merthyr Tidville, continues his work to raise awareness about the devastating impact of the coal board's negligence and broader corporate negligence in particular on smaller communities. This is especially pertinent given that in the intervening years, Abervan hasn't escaped a socioeconomic downturn. With the closure of the colliery, unemployment in the area rose, leaving many young people disenfranchised with not much more than drugs and alcohol to fill the gap. The graves of the victims continue to be maintained by their families and the memorial charity. The grave markers have since been upgraded to distinctive white granite arches, which sit in two rows in Brintaff Cemetery. Some survivors still call Abervan home. For years, Karen Thomas has tended the graves of Nancy Williams, the woman who saved her life. What is certain is that the community spirit in Abervan remains strong. The Young Wives Club still continues to this day, though it has since dropped the descriptor of Young from its title. And if you're ever fortunate enough to attend a performance of the NSO and male choir, you'll be treated to the melodic harmonies of many of the men who were once members of the Abervan Tip Removal Committee. 
It was their campaigning which protected the village from any other further negligence on the part of the coal board. Like the Wives Club, the 40 choristers are simply local men who wanted to continue their project, focus community work. But the choir also allows them to foster their lifelong friendships. These are bonds which are forged in fire by taking on the authorities in the glare of the media spotlight all while dealing with the almost insurmountable grief that few of us will ever know. But for now, I think that just about wraps things up. For a full list of the victims in the disaster, please see our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.